Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. Ben, how are you feeling? Feeling pretty good. Yeah, I'm excited to watch this evening's movie. I'm also excited for tonight's movie. I am coming down with something, so I apologize if my voice sounds a little weird. Mm. Uh so far testing negative for COVID. Yeah. But I know that there is a head cold kind of thing going around in Calgary. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, uh, like you, I am very excited for tonight's movie. As its reputation precedes itself, what are we watching? Tonight, Sarah, we are watching The Tingler from 1959, directed by William Castle. Yes. Sir William Castle. Just William Castle. <laughs> No knighthood. (laughs) We are actually not the only people who are interested and excited for tonight's movie, The Tingler. Um, We had a listener named Chris Crew email us. Uh, He has a band and they made a song uh, using clips of Vincent Price movies and it's called The Tingler. Um, And with his permission, I am going to play a little snippet here for you folks so you can hear like this really cool thing. Wow, what a treat. I, I want to personally sense the power of the tingler in a genuine fear situation. The tingler. I think I found a name for it. The tingler. Thanks, Chris Crew. If people would like to check out more of his music, there will be a link in the podcast notes. Nice. So this is our third William Castle film after Macabre and House on Haunted Hill, Mm. uh, which we both enjoyed quite a bit. And as covered in our previous William Castle episodes, he had worked at Columbia Pictures originally, starting at age 23, for about 16 years uh, before he struck out on his own. He directed 39 low-budget pictures for Henry Cohn at Columbia before founding his own production company and creating Macabre and House on Haunted Hill uh, independently, with Mm. both films being released by Allied Artists. Now, the phenomenal success of those two films, which grossed $5 million and $2.5 million, respectively, led to Columbia inviting Castle back (laughs) Um, and making his production company into an independent unit within the studio. Okay, so they remain their own team, but they're now just working under Columbia and on their payroll? Yeah, so what that meant was that Castle was able to take the people who had worked with him on the two independent films and make them into a full-time staff, right? So Mm. it's like they're on salary now as opposed to hey, I'm going to pay you, you know, your hourly rate or your daily rate or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so great. yeah, so he took that deal. And now there was an expectation, right? Like you need to produce more of these, uh, you know, horror films on a regular basis 
with gimmicks. Right. Yeah, I feel like the gimmicks is the the big thing here. Mm-hmm. Now, luckily for Castle, he still had Vincent Price on contract because Price had signed on for two films when he signed on for House on Haunted Hill. So he knew he had like a Vincent Price movie, you know, ready to go. Just needed to find an idea. And Jack Dusick, who had done the makeup effects for House on Haunted Hill, mocked up a model of a giant velvet worm. Um, which is like a type of worm that's sort of halfway between like an earthworm and something with a backbone. Okay, I'm going to look up a photo because I can't imagine what this this is. Uh, a velvet worm, you Velvet say. worm, yeah. So he, he basically created like a, a version of it that was like three feet long, right? Instead of like a tiny little bug thing. And was like, hey, you know, what about this? Oh, it's so cute. Sorry, there's just this one photo that's like a close-up of its like face mm. and it has these antenna and then these little dinky arms. But I think the thing to call attention to here is that it has legs, whereas worms don't. Mm. It's almost like a, a, a caterpillar that's crossed with a millipede. Yeah. So he showed it, this model he had mocked up, to Macabre and House on Haunted Hill screenwriter Rob White. And Rob White thought it looked pretty horrific. And so he created a story around it about a parasite that lives attached to the spine of every human being and feeds off your fear. And when you become afraid, it's feeding off you. And that's why your spine tingles when you're afraid. Um, Hence the name The Tingler. Correct. So White created a story about like a pathologist uh, to be played by Vincent Price, who would be studying the origins of fear, who discovers the tingler. And uh, in an attempt to like induce fear in himself, he injects himself with drugs at one point. And White wanted to do something a little bit different than like the usual version of this kind of scene that was shown in movies. Yeah. He wanted to kind of do something a little different, a little unique. So he decided to use the then little known drug LSD, uh, lysergic acid diethylamide. Right. Um, Because that hadn't been used much in pop culture up to this point. Um, And White had heard about it from Aldous Huxley. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about LSD on the show at all because it's like 1959. So Sarah... What's LSD for our for our <laughs> for our listeners who may not know what the deal with LSD is, and also like what was its place in U.S. culture before the swinging '60s? Why don't you enlighten us? Yeah, so as you said, LSD is lysergic acid diethylamide, um, or LSD for short. When do you think it was first made? It's like 1938 or something, right? Holy shit. Yes. 1938. (laughs) Um, I thought I would really stump you because I was like, damn, 1930s. Okay. Uh, It was first synthesized by Albert Hoffman, who was researching some new pharmaceutical drugs, trying to find something to create an analeptic. So basically a stimulant for like your circulatory and your respiratory systems. Hmm. He came back to this LSD solution uh, later in 1943 because he was like, oh, this doesn't do what I want it to do. Okay, I'll just leave it alone. 
He came back to it in 1943, and in recreating that solution, he accidentally exposed himself. It like got on his hands or something, mm. and he had kind of a bad trip. Okay. Um, point of order as well. The phrase trip wasn't coined yet, mm. but whatever. I'm going to use it. A few days later, on April 19th, he purposefully ingested this drug after this, you know, weird sensation that he had, and found an extremely stimulated imagination and kind of kaleidoscopic hallucinations. So because April 19th was his first purposeful exposure, there's a, uh, a, a holiday celebrating that called Bicycle Day uh, that started in 1985 that celebrates April 19th as the first time LSD was tried. So wait a minute. You're telling me mm-hmm. that the LSD day... Yeah. Is 419. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, Originally, it was going to be April 16th when, like, the first, like, Mm. accidental exposure happened. But I guess when they were coming up with, like, setting up this holiday in 1985, that was going to fall on a weekday. And they were like, oh, but (laughs) we want to party. So we'll move it to the 19th. So, question. I don't know if you know this. But, like, what is... LSD like where does it come from like where do you get it from like I know that like you know marijuana comes from like a plant right and so does (laughs) cocaine and heroin and you know psilocybin's from mushrooms yeah 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 it's from the medicinal plant called squill and uh, a fungus called ergot okay it's a fungus thing gotcha yeah so squill is like I don't know kind of looks like an onion it has other medicinal uses, and the fungus ergot uh, is literally a mushroom. Okay. So <laughs> that's gotcha. where that comes from. Gotcha, gotcha. See, I thought an ergot was when you won like an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Yes, it is that too. Fun fact, anyone who is an ergot also gets a lifetime supply of LSD. <laughs> this uh, is all not true. This no, is all not true. No, no. Um, yeah, so like human beings eating fungus and just well, like he was trying things. to find a pharmaceutical I, yeah, thing. I know. So you know, he comes back to it. He's like, okay, I think that this LSD solution has some like uses that uh, can benefit mankind. It might not be analeptic in the sense of like these new drugs, but it might help with psychiatric care. Okay. So 1947 is when LSD began to be used in psychiatric situations, particularly because uh, they thought it was uh, this fancy word called uh, psychotomimetic, a.k.a. it mimics a mental illness. So we'll, we as therapists will be able to better understand our patients. Right. So I don't know what a, like, say, schizophrenic person is going through. So I'll inject myself with LSD and that'll give me an idea. Yeah. This sounds great. That was when it was first being introduced into a pharmaceutical kind of environment. But people began to investigate and research how LSD might be able to help patients rather Mm. than just the uh, people treating the patients. Okay. So now I'm going to introduce two different people who are kind of the main proponents of LSD in two very different contexts. You've mentioned one already, Aldous Huxley. Uh, the one I'll focus on first is Sidney Cohen. 
Okay. Does that name sound familiar to you at all? I'm just curious. Yes. Um, was Sidney Cohen a professor at UCLA? Yes. Then yes, he comes into the story later. Okay, interesting. So he started looking into medical uses of LSD in 1955. He tries it in 1955 and describes how the worries of everyday life vanished and were replaced with, quote, majestic, sunlit, heavenly inner quietude. I do love, like, if you find the records of doctors who are, like, the first ones to try, you know, like, this in this case, LSD, but also if, like, you go back to the Victorian era and you look up, like, the first guys who tried, like, uh, morphine and, like, heroin and shit, like, just the, like, oh, damn, I have definitely discovered something that is, like, going to save mankind. <laughs> this that shit was, is rad. That was the belief about LSD. Yeah. Um, for Sidney Cohen, not quite as, like that far <laughs> like he saw a really positive use for it mm-hmm. in this medical setting but a lot of people who were proponents of lsd we saw it as like solving mankind's proclivity to violence right if we just dope everyone exactly yeah. well okay so cohen he uh graduated as a pharmacist in 1930 he studied medicine uh, and graduated with a medical degree in 1938. He was in uh, the World War II uh, Army Medical Corps. Um, he completed his residency and then became chief of psychiatrics at Wadsworth VA Hospital in LA in 1948. He was also assistant chief of medical service in 1948 at that same hospital. In 1954, he became faculty at the UCLA School of Medicine. So I bring all of this up because he is an experienced doctor. He's a real doctor. He's a real doctor. He knows what he's doing. Right. And he was a pioneer in LSD research and pharmaceuticals. Um, LSD, but also other uh, psychedelic drugs with the hope of like these drugs facilitating psychotherapy, allowing you to, you as in the patient, to be able to search within yourself to overcome whatever mental illness you might have at the time. There were thoughts that it could cure alcoholism and other like personality disorders that uh, like behavioral therapy weren't helping with. Hmm. Particularly what makes Cohen stand out as different from other LSD proponents is that he was a firm believer in supervised consumption. Hmm. Yeah, don't don't take this stuff alone. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other figure that I kind of mentioned was Aldous Huxley. He's been experimenting with psychedelic drugs since the early 1950s. He started with mescaline. That comes from mushrooms, I believe. Mm. After trying mescaline in 1953, he wrote and published the book The Doors of Perception in 1954, talking about um, how psychedelic drugs like open your mind and have this like mystical experience and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly is a creatively exhilarating experience. You can better understand yourself, the world and your place in it. Now, Cohen and Huxley eventually do meet and they disagree about the effects on creativity. Mm. Cohen's like, I don't think it has any effect, positive or negative. And Huxley's like, no, it expands your mind, dude. So that's kind of where, like, Huxley's in here. Um, He writes a lot, like, essays, short stories. Like, he is responsible for bringing psychedelic drugs at large into, like, a common conversation to people reading his stuff. Got it. I'll say that 
both Cohen and Huxley are correct in where LSD can be used positively. Mm. Um, there's another doctor, Dr. Humphrey Osmond, who worked with Alcoholics Anonymous um, to see if like people who are struggling to be recovered alcoholics, like they keep going back to alcohol, can LSD help them? And in their trials, 50% of people managed to stay off alcohol. Mm. And eventually go off LSD as well. It's not like just replacing it. Right. But um, that's like a huge success number. Right. There are other people who I would argue might have a bigger influence on the drug culture of the 1950s leading into the 1960s than just Aldous Huxley. Uh, And these people, these gentlemen, are Alfred Hubbard and psychologist Tim Leary. There we go. Yeah. Timothy Leary, yeah, big deal guy. Yeah, were you just waiting for me to get to Tim Basically, Leary? yeah. Okay. He's like the yeah. uh, the pitch man for LSD, you know? Yes, but also Alfred Hubbard. <laughs> I tried to find out, like, what was his career in? And he, he he's, he's just a drug dealer. <laughs> he's just a drug dealer. All he did was, like, oh, I happen to have, like, good connections because I happen to work in, like, the government or, like, this well-known corporation or whatever and just, like, knows how to talk people. He's a salesman. Right. Right? Um, and so he would go around with, like, drugs like LSD in his briefcase and be like, hey, you want to try some? <laughs> First one's free. <laughs> like, that's who Alfred Hubbard is. He also worked with the CIA on MK Ultra. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a whole other ball of wax. Yeah. Um, the CIA's secret plan to use LSD to mind control people. Well, okay. Put a pin in that and uh-huh. I'll come back to it. Okay. Tim Leary, he did, he's like a, an actual psychologist. Um, he did a ton of experiments to show like the positive effects of LSD uh, through the 50s. Looking back on them, people are like, I don't think these were above board. Mm -hmm. Um, He did experiments on prisoners, not with, but on. He over-exaggerated the mystical experience and how there was no chance of a bad trip, completely glossing over the fact that uh, a woman involved in one of these experiments attempted suicide after. Um, And into the 1960s, Tim Leary becomes like a big outspoken advocate for LSD going in so far as to like give a a playboy interview saying that it helps with your sex drive, Mm -hmm. even though there's no actual evidence of that. He, he really gets off on that media attention. Yeah. I mean, he was like giving LSD to his students and stuff like, um, and if you know the, uh, the phrase, um, what is it? Tune in, tune out, drop out whatever yeah. that is, yeah, that's he, Tim Leary, right? So at least as far as like the late 50s, LSD is focused around psychotherapy. You have psychologists and or psychiatrists sharing the drug with their friends because they're like, hey, you should try this. It's a party trick. Mm-hmm. And then that leads to people like Leary and Hubbard kind of spreading it around even further. Um, Huxley is writing and, you know, bringing terms like LSD or mescaline into like public consciousness but um it's really these two other people that are like really bringing it forward into like a recreational use right it's not until the 1960s and particularly like 1964-65 that there is a big pushback against any use recreational or not um because 
The recreational use of LSD is associated with the counterculture movement and the idea of it ruining family values. Yeah, like, I feel like as much as Timothy Leary was like the, hey, everyone, let's do LSD guy, without him, it might still be legal because, like, he was such a big part of, like, the dropout counterculture movement and the counterculture movement was, like, protesting the war and shit. And so the government was like, well... I guess we'll just make your party drug illegal then. Yeah, um, people like Cohen, people like Osmond, who are doing like the research side of it and trying to see like how can it benefit people Mm -hmm. who are struggling mentally. They had a lot of challenges with Leary, like vocally, because it was cracking down on their research as well. It was more than just the recreational use. So that's where we are in 1959. Let me circle back to MK Ultra real quick. <laughs> okay. So as you said, uh, that was like the CIA's program to investigate LSD and other psychedelic drugs uh, and potential uses for it. Did you know it started in 1953? Yeah, and it was like totally off the books and illegal. It, absolutely. They like were doing... nobody, Congress didn't know, like nobody didn't know shit. Yeah, to the point where like some of their experiments were even illegal. Like, straight up. Yeah, like, the the people they were experimenting on didn't know they were being experimented on. There was no consent given. No. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to kind of put a pin in you saying, like, mind control stuff, there's evidence that in the 70s when MKUltra came to light and stuff um, and people were talking about it, that those motivations, those ludicrous motivations, were given to kind of hide what they were actually working on, which were interrogation methods. Sure. Like we're going to get you super high and then (laughs) ask you a bunch of questions. Yeah. Like a truth serum, something that would negate the effect of alcohol, something that would exacerbate the effect of alcohol, other things like that along interrogation lines. Right. Like you've got like a, you know, no good commie spy tied up in your (laughs) uh, interrogation room and you're like, you know, tell us who you work for. And you give him the LSD and he goes, I work for the beautiful mushroom kingdom. And you go, oh, this isn't doing what we wanted to do. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. So that's that's MKUltra. Gotcha. But um, yeah, there's evidence that Alfred Hubbard directly worked with them, mm. which is like, yeah, because he's just a salesman. He, yeah. 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 So that's that's where the drug culture is right now. It's right. Kind of like the recreational use is increasing it hasn't reached its boom point yet um so it makes sense that the use that's shown in the film or that you kind of teased a little bit is on the medical side yeah it sounds like we're kind of on the cusp between lsd being like a thing that experimenting scientists take for funsies and like the big counterculture drug movement right like we're right in between those two things in 1959 so having so White heard about it from Aldous Huxley because White, um, you know, was a screenwriter, obviously, but was most well known in literary circles as the writer of like boys adventure novels. Mm. I've mentioned that in like past episodes when we've talked about him. So he hears about LSD from Aldous Huxley and then he wants to research its effects uh, before using it in the screenplay. So he goes to UCLA and has Cohen mm-hmm. inject him with it. Yeah. Um, So that's why I said like Cohen comes into the story here. So Cohen injects him with LSD because this is, you know, long before it's criminalized. 
And he has this trip where he remembers watching wood grain patterns move and like hearing music that didn't exist and things. He, he was like, it was interesting, but I never want to do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a bad time. And so then after taking it, um, he told Vincent Price about the experience, hoping that that would give the actor the ability to give like a realistic performance of what it's like to be on LSD. Uh, but to White's disappointment, but not surprise, Price just went with the same kind of like overacting that tended to accompany like all Hollywood like drug trip scenes at that time. Like whether your character was supposed to be doing like marijuana or heroin or LSD, you just kind of like did a big, broad Jekyll and Hyde thing, and that was drugs, man. And uh, well, that's visually interesting. Yeah, because I bet it wasn't interesting to look at the screenwriter as he's going on his trip. Like he's no. just sitting there. Exactly. So White felt that Vincent Price was kind of an overactor, and that he like ruined White's scripts for like House on Hyde Hill and Tingler um, by making them too campy. But uh, you know teach their own so uh rounding out the cast from vincent price is a lot of like less expensive people i guess you could say castle hired relative newcomer pamela lincoln to play the role of price's sister-in-law who is engaged to price's assistant and it's like well why did you cast pamela lincoln specifically And I think we can get the answer because then after casting Lincoln, he convinced Lincoln's real life fiance, actor Daryl Hickman, to play her character's fiance, Price's assistant, on the grounds that the publicity of that, like, oh, and they're actually engaged, folks, would be good for the film and thus good for Lincoln's burgeoning career because this Mm. was like one of her first roles. Um, And yeah, Hickman like agreed to that. He bought into that idea. Now, Daryl Hickman was a Hollywood native born in 1931, who started acting when he was six years old, uh, appearing in films like The Prisoner of Zenda, Grapes of Wrath, Meet Me in St. Louis, Rhapsody in Blue, all kinds of stuff. As he got older, of course, he had a lot of the same struggles that a lot of child actors have. He transitioned mostly into TV work, and, you know, he was working regularly in the late 50s, but the highlights of his career were in the past. Um, In the 60s and 70s, he would transition into work as a television executive and as an acting coach. And he and Pamela Lincoln would be married from 1959 to 1982. But the Tingler would remain Pamela's most notable role. Mm. Her career did not take off after this. Um, Actress Judith Evelyn uh, plays a deaf-mute woman who is the wife of a silent movie theater owner in this film. And she will be most recognizable to cineasts as Miss Lonely Hearts from Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. So between being espied through Jimmy Stewart's binoculars in that movie and being a deaf mute in this movie, she has no dialogue in either. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, Of course, by this point, it was clear that William Castle's trademark was his gimmicks. And for The Tingler, he went all out. On the gimmicks. Uh, the Tingler had a budget of $400,000. Um, the main gimmick for the film cost an additional $250,000 on top of that. And then the other kind of side gimmicks meant that altogether about a million dollars was spent on the Tingler. There was just a lot on offer here mm-hmm. for gimmicks. Um, for one thing, 
William Castle appears in like a Frankenstein style prologue warning at the start of the film being like, hey, this is scary, like back out now. And Castle also appeared in the film's trailers, um, trying to establish a kind of familiarity with audiences similar to Alfred Hitchcock's. Like we're like, hey, I'm William Castle. Like I have, I am the brand, yeah. right? Uh, in the film itself, which is shot in black and white, a single color scene was spliced into every print. And we've sort of talked in the past about how expensive that was back in the day. Would that expense be associated with the gimmick costs? Uh, yeah, that would be sort of an additional expense of, of doing the splicing, right? Like a mm-hmm. post expense. The thing about this color scene, what they did was it's a scene where it looks like red blood is the only color element in the shot that is otherwise still black and white. Oh, Castle achieved this by shooting on a set that only used grayscale colors, uh. including props, costumes, actors' makeup. They shot on color film with everything made to look black and white with the red blood. That's fun. Yeah. But the major gimmick for this movie, the one that cost $250,000 to pull off, was Percepto, uh, which was purported to put audience members in the movie. Basically what this was, was Castle purchased in bulk a ton of um, wing de-icing motors from army surplus from World War II. Things that would go on like planes that were designed to like shake the plane wings to de-ice them. I see where this is going. And so then, um, and again, you know, just to remind listeners, or if you're like new to the show, back in the day, movies didn't really like premiere everywhere all at once. Um, they would start out in big cities and then do like, they would travel to smaller locations and kind of go across. So like a movie that premiered in January in New York might not get to like your little town in Idaho until like May, who knows? And that's kind of what enabled Castle to do these kinds of gimmicks. You really couldn't pull these off on the same scale today, but basically at each theater that the Tingler played at. A number of seats in the audience were rigged with these motors with a control given to the projectionist. At a key point in the film, the movie just sort of stops and the audience is in darkness. And Vincent Price's voice, which comes from the rear speakers in the theater, uh, which is normally where like announcements from the management would come from, comes on and announces that a Tingler is loose in the theater and then with all the lights off the projectionist would activate the buzzers tingling certain sensitive audience members like that was the explanation for why it's not every seat it's like oh some people are more sensitive than others and then those audience members were encouraged by vincent price to scream for their lives because the only thing that will kill a tingler is screaming oh um in larger theaters like i'm talking like your new york your la your chicago theaters Castle even hired screamers and fainters to sit in the audience and he would have like a woman faint and then like fake nurses would come in and put her on like a stretcher and carry her away, (laughs) you know, for the next show. Um, So yeah, it was, it was pretty elaborate um, for the gimmicks on this one. The Tingler was released on July 29th, 1959, and it made $2 million. Ah, because it cost about a million, right? So that makes sense. That's great. Yeah. Um, It did, however, receive mixed reviews. Uh, The New York Times called it dull, uh, while Variety praised the Percepto gimmick. 
in recent years, it's become something of like a camp horror classic, um, a so bad it's good kind of movie. The title kind of leans into that. Mm, mm. Today, The Tingler is available on DVD from Sony. There was a 40th anniversary edition that was pretty good. Blu-ray from Screen Factory, um, also a pretty good edition. But the best home video edition to get is the Blu-ray from Indicator, uh, which is a region-free Blu-ray. And the reason for that is threefold. (laughs) One is that um, the special features are off the charts. A lot of them are carried over from the old DVDs and Blu-rays, but there's like a 40-page booklet that comes with like essays and all kinds of things. But also the manual for Percepto for projectionists telling you like exactly when to bring the house lights down, how to alter the volume, all kinds of stuff. Related to Percepto, one of the things that they did in addition to like the house lights going down and Vincent Price being like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, there's a tingler in the theater, blah, 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 is they, as I mentioned earlier, had Vincent Price in the rear channels. They had these screams going on on the soundtrack that were in stereo and like the rest of the movies in mono. So stereo surround sound was pretty new in 1959. So it kind of like goes from being this mono thing to this surround thing. And it really, you know, enhances all of that. And for that to work in the film, they actually had a section of the film, uh, the blacked out section for that sequence, where it switched to being a stereo surround soundtrack. Um, So there are instructions on the projectionist of like what to do with the volume and the levels in the theater at that time. This Blu-ray is the first one where you can actually watch the movie with that sound in stereo surround. Previous home video releases just had the mono soundtrack version. It also has the alternate soundtrack for the drive-in version of the movie, where instead of Vincent Price saying there's a tingler in the theater, it's William Castle's voice saying there's a tingler in the drive-in and to flash your headlights of your car. And on previous releases, these alternate things were in the bonus features section but in indicators blu-ray you can just like watch the movie with them you just pick it in the sound setup the other thing that's amazing about the indicator blu-ray is in past home video releases the color sequence that i mentioned earlier the negative for that hasn't survived because it had to be spliced in to the rest of the film so it's not the same negative as the rest of the film and that hasn't survived so on previous home video releases they used a 16 millimeter copy of it and that 16 millimeter copy was in uh academy ratio so then they had to crop it to um widescreen which meant the quality on it was really bad the indicator blu-ray takes it from a 35 millimeter source scanned at 4k it looks gorgeous so if you're going with physical media um go with the indicator blu-ray if you are just watching online it's available on tubi YouTube, and iTunes. Cool. Lots of ways and methods to watch this movie. Listener, I hope you're able to join us, but I hope that you don't feel that tingle. (laughs) You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Tingler from 1959, directed by William Castle. See you on the other side, everybody. The Tingler exists in every human being. It's extremely powerful.
fear causes the tingler to spread along the spinal column. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Tingler from 1959, directed by William Castle. Sarah, what'd you think? Uh, I was a little disappointed. Oh, no. Yeah, um, I, can get, I can get into why in the discussion, but yeah, I was disappointed. That sucks. I really liked this. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I, Ranking is going to be great. Yeah, it doesn't stick the landing in my opinion no like it i think it falls apart at the ending but and and usually that's a big deal for me you kind of have to get endings right but um i enjoyed so much of this for so much of the running time that i'm kind of like whatever about the ending Mm. um so yeah i'm sure this is going to be a really interesting discussion yeah because uh I was disappointed. I I have things to critique mm. about this movie. I am surprised that you enjoyed it as much as you did. I agree that it did not stick the landing, but I think it didn't care about sticking the landing mm. because I think the assumption was that you were so thrilled by the gimmicks mm. because they happened like right before and everything like that. You wouldn't think twice mm. about the logic behind how the ending goes. Sure. Uh, but how about instead of speaking cryptically, I actually give the plot. Yeah. When we open, Dr. Warren Trappin is doing an autopsy on an executed man. And he meets the executed man's brother-in-law. Uh, his name is Ollie Higgins. To Ollie, while he's there for the autopsy, Warren explains that he does research into fear. And how, like, you know, screaming is like an outlet for the buildup of tension with fear and you could die if you don't have that outlet of fear. Uh, And for example, the executed man, though he was electrocuted, he has a broken vertebrae, which doesn't line up with how someone would die from being electrocuted. And so, you know, Warren says a little bit more about like, yeah, I think there's something to the idea of like, the urge to scream and that tingle you get on the back of your neck. And Ollie goes like, oh, like some sort of tingler. And that's the name of the movie. And thus, Ollie has named our nemesis for this movie. So Warren drives Ollie home uh, to his apartment above a movie theater that shows exclusively silent films. And this theater is run by Ollie and his deaf-mute wife named Martha. Now, uh, Warren is invited to stay over coffee, and he does that, but he uh, accidentally cuts his hand on a broken saucer, and Martha sees the blood and faints, and Warren theorizes that it's because, as a a mute, she doesn't have any vocal cords, she literally cannot scream, and so her body, like, shuts down in response. So, Warren goes home, and we meet uh, a few more characters. We meet his ward, Lucy, her fiancé, Dave, who is also Warren's assistant, and Dave, when he arrives, he delivers some LSD for Warren. Now, Lucy has been waiting for Dave because they're heading out for a nice dinner. They head out, and then we see it's late at night, and Warren's wife, Isabel, who is Lucy's sister, uh, she comes home late from a date and is, like, making out with a guy outside. So there's adultery going on. Warren 
confronts Isabel. This isn't like the first time Isabel has been acting this way. And he pulls a gun on her and forces her into his lab. Now, Isabel is clearly not the best person. She's sticking barbs here and there. Um, and basically, Warren is like, no, I'm going to shoot you and make it look like suicide. She tries to escape and he shoots her and then immediately does some x-rays on her body. Suddenly, Isabel awakes and it turns out that she wasn't shot. They were just blanks. Um, and the whole goal for Warren was to conduct these x-rays while Isabel was basically scared to the point of fainting to further his research into fear. Now, these x-rays show that there is some kind of parasite on the spine, and this thing curls and grows when the host is scared, and then stops and shrinks in response to screams. So the screams keep the tingler from basically breaking your neck. Now, Warren wants to investigate this further, but he can't be scared, so he takes out the LSD to invoke fear in himself, but when he does that, he can't help but scream. He can't stop himself. And so he figures, like, okay, well, I need someone who can't scream even when scared. Hmm. So he heads to the that silent film theater to check in on Ollie and Martha. He's like, yeah, Ollie, um, the way that Martha was behaving that can be pretty serious. Like, has she been acting all right? And Ollie's like, yeah, she's been a nervous wreck. Uh, so Warren goes up to examine her and concludes that Martha just needs some sleep. So he injects her with a sleeping drug and then sends Ollie on an errand to the pharmacy to get some more sleeping pills. Warren leaves, and next we see Martha wake up and have these frightful visions of a masked man in her apartment something spooky and supernatural chasing her through the apartment, and when she makes it to the bathroom, a bloody bathtub. Um, and this is where we see everything is in grayscale except for the blood uh, pouring out of the faucet. And Martha collapses. Uh, she has died of fright. Next we see Ollie is bringing her to Dr. Warren because he's like, well, you just examined her, and now she's dead, and I don't know what to do. So Warren checks that, yeah, she's dead. And yet she's moving. She, like, sits up on the examination table, but she's not, like, responsive or anything. And so Warren does an autopsy and removes this gigantic tingler from her spine while holding this tingler uh, with its vice thingies. Mandibles? Mandibles. Well, it's, like, on its butt. No, that's that's meant to be the front of it. Oh, okay. Well, um, with its vice-like mandibles uh it nearly breaks warren's arm uh and with his scream it like relaxes a bit and responds to the scream and they're able to lock it up into a box now isabel sees that the tingler is there um and so she plans she comes up with a plan now something i didn't mention before but i realize now might be pertinent is when Warren was threatening Isabel with the gun, he was making insinuations that Isabel killed her dad for inheritance money. And you know what we say about blackmailing murderers? Don't do it. Don't do it. So uh, Isabel has this plan 
Uh, after Ollie leaves with Martha's body, Isabel drugs Warren and then lets the tingler loose in the study to attack him. And he is only saved by Lucy, who happens to come in just in time to uh, scream as the tingler is choking out Warren. Uh, and we hear that Isabel has left with her suitcase. You know, she she's booked it. So it's the next day and Warren and Dave are trying to destroy the tingler. Dave's like, yeah, but we've worked so hard. Don't you want to like take it to the science fair convention? Don't you want to do papers? And Warren's like, no, with no valid reason. Just no. It's sort of like a, there are some, like they kind of try to make it like a, there's some things man was not meant to know thing, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. So um, they're like, okay, well let's destroy it. But just, they are unable to. Um, the, nothing is killing this thing. So Warren's like, okay, well, but what if we put it back into the host body? Because then maybe it's like it'll die because its host is dead or it'll shrink back down and then it'll be easier to kill. Um, we're all working off of theories here. So they give Ollie a call to be like, hey, where'd you take the body to like the coroner to a funeral home? And Ollie won't answer. And he didn't like let the cops know that there was a dead body, nothing. And Warren's like, that's suspicious. So he heads over to their apartment and confronts him. And it turns out that Ollie killed Martha. Uh, he had the, like, masked burglar face and the knife prop and everything that we saw in Martha's visions. As Warren is confronting Ollie, uh, the Tingler actually manages to escape into the theater below. And then we get the... Um, kind of gimmick sequence that Ben described. The tingler's in the theater. First we see it crawling along the floor and like grabbing onto a girl. Uh, so then like the lights go out and we hear Vincent Price being like, hey, everyone stay calm. This chick's getting medical attention. Next we see, uh, you know, we resume the silent film that's on the screen. And then we see that the tingler is like crawling across the projector. Um, so we see its shadow. And then that's when the lights go out and it's like, oh, the tingler is in the theater or in the car, in this case, or whatever. And then we cut back to the movie, um, and it's like attacking the projectionist. In any case, they managed to get the tingler under control. They head back up to the apartment, and Warren puts the tingler back onto Martha's body. And Warren's like, okay, Ollie, we're going to the police now, because you killed your wife through fright. Ollie pulls a gun, and he's like, I'm not going to no coppers. Uh, so Warren's like, listen, man, I have no skin in this game and like leaves uh, with the idea that he's going to go call the police right after. Now, Ollie stays in the apartment when suddenly weird things start happening around him. Uh, the doors close, trapping him in, just like what happened in Martha's dream. And suddenly Martha sits up and confronts him wordlessly and like unresponsively, almost as if the tingler is controlling her. And we end on Ollie's face, like, terrified, but he can't scream. Uh, and so he, he dies from fright. And then we get voiceover from, uh, I believe it's William Castle, saying, like, screaming saves your life, but in a more spooky tone of voice <laughs> and, and messaging. Uh, that's the end. So, Ben, um, I can sum up, like, the main reason why I didn't enjoy this movie mm -hmm. with the fact that it is very weak narratively okay interesting it felt like there were twists for twists sake it reminded me not as egregious as this but it reminded me of like the final season of game of thrones <laughs> where it was like 
for no reason, people's motivations changed on a whim because the writers were like reading Reddit posts of like what people thought were going to happen and then purposefully did not do that. That's what it felt like for me Mm. watching The Tingler. So we can kind of start by like how it didn't stick the landing because it doesn't make sense for uh, like the doors to close supernaturally or whatever. How was the ending week for you? So I think the thing is the movie just kind of runs out of steam. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really make sense the way that after doing all the things that he's done to get proof of the tingler, uh, Vincent Price's character, Dr. Chapin Warren is like, uh, yeah, we're not going to present it. We're not going to show it. We're going to put it back in this chick and let it die because like, I, 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 like I kind of get it in the sense of like, it's a threat, but like, it would be more helpful to mankind overall if we knew more about it, which mm-hmm. would be like presenting it and like dissecting it and like, et cetera. Right. Like more scientific analysis. And he, he has this line about like, we've broken the laws of nature to like get this thing. And, and they really haven't. Yeah. Um, they actually haven't broken any laws to get this thing as it turns out. Um, arguably like ethical laws, like their scientific experiments are not ethical, but like, they didn't create it in a lot. La- like it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really make sense. So that kind of sucks. I think the reason why that's a plot element is because I feel like in some of these movies of this vintage, there was a sense that like you needed to restore the normal world mm-hmm. at the end of the story. Like you can't end the movie with like, everybody knows about tinglers and like, we all have a tingler and stuff, especially with the way that the movie like presents the audience as if they are like in the world of the movie and the way that these movies were aimed at teens and kids it's kind of like you want the audience to buy into the idea that tinglers exist for like 80 minutes right Mm -hmm. and i mean that's honestly the biggest leap you have to take for this movie you have to be willing to buy into the idea of tinglers even though they don't make sense um and that's fine i'll take the leap i'm here i bought a movie ticket but then it's like they feel like they need to put the genie back in the bottle for the end of the movie so that you can go back out, leave the theater into the real world and not be like, well, why does nobody know about Tinglers or whatever? Right. So, you know, it's just this unwillingness on the part of a lot of these old movies to like permanently change the world of the story. Well, also, like, I don't think they needed to worry about that. Like, I don't know if they were really thinking about it that hard, but it's like, I think it's an just like unconscious thing of like, well, we can't have the story deal with what the fallout for that would be or something like that. Well, they don't have to deal with it, but they also don't have to try to reset it. Yeah. And then like, again, it's really weird the way that like they have Ollie pull this gun on him. Like, you're not taking me to the cops. And Vincent Price is just like, yeah, whatever, man, I'm just going to go outside and call the cops and just leaves really calmly. Ollie doesn't shoot him. Like, I guess you can argue that like Warren kind of knows that Ollie isn't going to shoot him because the method that Ollie took to killing his wife was like super indirect to the point where he's arguing with Warren about like, well, I didn't really kill her. Did I? Cause I didn't like pull a trigger or stab her. And Warren's like, no dude, like you killed her. Like you're going to jail. So like you can, you can see that Warren like can be pretty confident that Ollie won't shoot him, but just from like a dramatic standpoint, it's kind of a fizzle of an ending. It absolutely is. As for like the very end with the doors closing and the the window closing, whatever, and and um, 
Martha sitting up. Like my reaction to that was like, what the fuck? Like we're just going off on like a scare for the sake of a scare. Yeah. But thinking about it a bit more, I think what we're supposed to be reading that as is like you said, the tingler just making her move again involuntarily. Like it did during the autopsy and like the door slamming shut and the window closing sort of by coincidence in that moment. Like, I don't think we're supposed to be reading it as something supernatural going on, but it's still like not a resolution. And I think that's the thing for me more than anything is the ending leaves a bunch of the story unresolved. And I think my other problem with it is Warren is not a good person. Correct. And the movie couldn't commit to it. Like if they wanted to commit to Warren not being a good person they wouldn't have had it be a twist of like, oh, Ollie killed her. Like it would have been he injected her with LSD. Like it's like leading you to assume. So I disagree that this is a fault. Okay. It makes it seem like, okay, I guess it's cool to be like awful to awful people because then you're just supposed to like be fine with how he treated his wife. So, yeah, so I I disagree with your interpretation of this. I do see where your complaint is, like, coming from. Like, I think it's a valid read. Yeah, Um, because we're just in the period of the code where it's like, okay, well, everyone who does bad needs to get a comeuppance. mm -hmm. Um, The wife leaves. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we don't see her get any comeuppance. And Warren doesn't get any comeuppance for, like, what he did to her. Yeah, so I think, like, we're at this weird point. Um, The production code is going to get a final revision in 1960. And by 1959, like, it's really broken. Like, a mm. lot of Hollywood movies are coming out that just don't have code approval. Um, like, some like It Hot, for instance, yeah. or Anatomy of a Murder. And people are getting more brazen about things. So I, I see, like, I see where your complaint is coming from. Especially if you read it as, like, well, wait, is Warren supposed to be a good guy? And if he is, does that mean that we're supposed to be, like, on board with all of his behavior? Yeah. But I don't think he's supposed to be a good guy. I don't think he's the bad guy either. I think he's very intentionally ambiguous. And I think what I saw watching this movie was kind of like a realization that William Castle has themes that he returns to just as much as like Tim Burton or Alfred Hitchcock or whatever. It's not just the gimmicks. And it's not just the like copyright free vertigo theme that they use right. in this movie yeah yeah um <laughs> the score by von dexter really shows the alfred hitchcock influence for sure i want to say I, i'll get into this later but like william castle wears his influences on his sleeve yeah but the thing about this is like what what made this made sense to me was when i realized that like it's the same thing as house on haunted hill where Vincent Price is trying to kill his wife. His wife's trying to kill him. Is he the good guy? Is he the bad guy? Like at the end of the day, he kills his wife, but it's like, oh, but she was trying to kill me. And it's like kind of justified, kind of not like they're both awful. And then I realized like macabre was like that too. Like it's the family trying to kill each other. And even the hero like isn't great. And this is like yet another story like that with family members trying to kill one another. And the thing that made me realize like this is a theme is that we have two sets of them in this movie. Like, both marriages in this movie are abusive, non-functional marriages. And Castle's doing a lot of really interesting things with writer Rob White to portray these things without 
getting too deep into the weeds where they would have maybe problems with, from the code uh, if they went too far into it. Like, I don't think we're supposed to think Chapin's a good guy. Warren, sorry. I keep calling him Dr. Chapin because that's his name, but in the movie, they mostly just call him Warren. Vincent Price, I don't think we're supposed to think he's a good guy. But the way the movie is set up is, yeah, you're totally supposed to think because he keeps talking about it. Like, well, if only I could find someone who can't scream and then made them afraid with this drug I have that makes people afraid. And then, you know, Martha has this experience. He goes over there, he drugs her, and then she has this experience that you kept referring to as like visions and dreams because they seem like really wild. And especially with the the blood being red, like the audience is being led to believe this is a bad LSD trip and that Warren is purposely scaring her to death. And then the twist is he had nothing to do with it. And so if you kind of like rewind the movie and like take a step back... And go, okay, so he had nothing to do with killing her. You know, he gave her a sedative because we find out that all of the things that she saw were just like straight up haunted house things set up by Ollie to scare her to death. Yeah. Um, And that Ollie doesn't even know about the LSD. He doesn't know about any. He just knows about the tingler because he talked to Warren about it. So. And maybe he saw the diabolique. Right. (laughs) Yes. Um, When Sarah was talking about the blood coming out of the, the... tap into the sink the other thing is it's filling a bathtub and like a hand rises up out of the bathtub and that was very like yeah i know william castle you saw la diabolique yeah um it was your big influence for macabre and for house on Hyde hill and for this movie but what i'm trying to say is then you need to kind of start recontextualizing warren's actions earlier in the movie towards his wife which are still bad but they're there at the start of the movie, to make you think this guy is so unethical, he will kill Martha. Yeah. And it turns out he's not. And, like, he's the one at the end of the movie telling Ollie, like, yeah, man, like, this is murder. You're going to go to jail. Because when you look at, like, what Warren actually did, taking away the later thing of, like, him killing Martha, because he didn't, it's like he scared his wife. He was a dick about it. But the other thing is, like, their marriage is fucked. She might have killed her dad for his money. He married her for her money because her money funds all of his research, it turns out. Um, She's super abusive to her sister Lucy by like withholding Lucy's inheritance so that Lucy can't marry like David or whatever. It's this whole big complicated soap opera drama and she sucks. She's a terrible person. She tries to kill him with the tingler. So... I don't think Warren is a good person, but I think he's not a murderer. And like, you know, when it comes to like the thing that he does with his wife, like you're meant to think he shot her and then it turns out he didn't. And then that's meant to set you up into thinking he will kill Martha and he doesn't. He's an unethical scientist and he's not a good person. Um, Just like Vincent Price in House on Haunted Hill was not a good person. But like, I don't think that's supposed to be seen as justifying him being unethical at any point. I think Castle is showing us these are all shitty people because then with Ollie, like what's, what's neat about Ollie is the movie leans so hard into showing you Warren as unethical that like you're surprised. It's like, Oh shit, it was Ollie. It wasn't an LSD trip, but the Ollie twist isn't out of nowhere because when Warren visits at first, there's all these little hints uh, Martha is always around the safe 
and is super paranoid. And like the first thing she does after she wakes up from fainting from the blood is like goes right to the safe as if she thinks that maybe Ollie would have absconded with the money while she was unconscious. And Ollie even says like, she won't let me alone in the house with the safe. And there's like all these hints that like, she doesn't trust him. And he even says after getting accused of killing her, he's like, yeah, she would have killed me if she had the chance. Like they're shitty people. I think these are all just shitty people. And I like that about this movie for two reasons. One is that it enables Castle to do a lot of scenes like the thing where we think Warren's going to kill his wife and then like the scare on Martha and then like Isabel releasing the tingler and stuff. That means that there are scares throughout the movie and tension that is building up and up throughout the movie. So I really liked that. It keeps the movie kind of feeling nasty and dark all throughout. The horror of this movie is not really the kind of weird, absurdist Tingler stuff, which is Mm -hmm. strains credulity. It's really about these morally bereft and abusive couples. And noticing that in this movie made me realize that like that was a through line through all of Castle's stuff. And that this is like a theme that he's intentionally going into. Who hurt William Castle? Yeah, right? Um, So I see what you're saying. I am not persuaded Mm. away from this because everyone felt so one note. Mm. Lucy's good. Dave's the assistant. Warren, well, let me come back to Warren. Isabel's a bitch. Mm -hmm. Ollie's spineless. Mm -hmm. Like, so when people are doing things it's like yeah isabel's going to kill him okay cool going to use the tingler okay cool neat whatever scares whatever lucy comes in just in time cool makes sense whatever i understand like and looking back as well it's not like it comes out of nowhere that ollie kills his wife and that ollie got the idea about the tingler and all those things but what i got frustrated with was the movie trying to like pull the rug out or like try to trick me with my assumptions Mm. uh, with a complete 180 Mm. of like, just kidding. Warren isn't bad enough to kill Martha. See, he's not even willing to like talk about the tingler to the wider community because he thinks he's like spat in the face of God for some reason. Um, It was just a complete 180 and it didn't work for me. Okay. Interesting. Especially because like, You're like, yeah, he was a dick to his wife. He scared her. No, she thought she was going to fucking die, Ben. Yeah, so I think, like, this is, like, okay, so for me, like, it was a clever twist. The twist happened. It's like, cool, now you need to, you know, reframe how you thought about the rest of the movie. You're feeling kind of, like, betrayed by the twist. And I think it's because, like, the instant he started being cruel to his shitty wife you were you turned against him and i think like the instant you have like male figures who are abusive in a domestic situation in a movie like you're like this guy's a villain if the movie's positioning him as a hero i don't like this movie i have lost all patience for watching this i want this guy dead and that's kind of it for you i'm not someone who goes with black and white thinking like i see what you're saying and i think Broad strokes, yeah, I would say that that's my reaction to movies that depict domestic violence. But as I tried to say in the beginning, this is 
supposed to be a code movie, right? And so with that assumption, it's like, okay, well, then why doesn't Warren get some comeuppance, right? Because he's shown himself to be a shitty fucking person. Yeah, he doesn't get a comeuppance because as far as, like, the code is concerned, he hasn't done anything. Yeah, and, and that's my problem. Yeah. I guess. And so I think, like, the thing here, too, is that, like, once you start to get frustrated with a movie because it's included a male domestic abuser the thing I notice is like you get really tired of it and that's where the like sure yeah whatever Lucy who cares attitude starts coming in like the movie just loses you it has to be doing something to not lose me Mm -hmm. like there are movies that we watch that are good movies that feature like a male abuser and I don't go oh whatever right like there has to be something that keeps me connected but because of the 180 that you're expected to follow with warren because everyone else is so fucking one note like it just it didn't work for me narratively i'm gonna disagree with you that people are one note because like warren is obviously meant to be very ambiguous isabel is really interesting because like she's very two-faced after he scares her she suddenly is a lot nicer to Lucy and David and that's like remarked upon by the characters and she tries to like cozy up to him again but then the first chance she gets to off him she you know tries to go for it um Ollie is spineless but willing to kill his wife his wife seems like a defenseless vulnerable you know deaf mute but clearly like wasn't great to Ollie either the only people here who are really one note are David and Lucy Mm -hmm. and David and Lucy are actually a big problem with the movie for me Yeah. Um, And that's because they do serve some purposes here and there, right? Like Lucy screaming rescues him and and so on. And their love affair introduces like conflict into Isabel and Warren's marriage because of the money thing. But they serve really no purpose in the overall story. They kind of vanish from the story after a certain point. You think they're like our young breeding couple, but like the movie doesn't care about their romance at all. And I think that's kind of a problem for a couple reasons. The movie loses interest in Isabel. Like she tries to kill Warren and then we fade to black. And when we come back, it's like, yeah, she packed up her stuff and left. And then she's just gone from the story. And now that she's gone from the story, I guess the conflict about David and Lucy getting married doesn't matter anymore. So then they kind of leave the story. And... I think the movie would be stronger if, you know, if what it's talking about is like these shitty people trapped in these shitty marriages, it would be stronger if like the Warren and Isabel story had some sort of resolution, right? You know, okay, she stole, like she took all her clothes and she left, but maybe we need an Alfred Hitchcock style, like, and then the police picked her up, you know, down the highway and she went to jail. (laughs) Cause she at least did actually try to kill Warren. Like, We think that Warren tries to kill her, but he's just scaring her. She legitimately tries to kill him. Um, So, like, that's weird that she just gets away. But also, like, if we could resolve the David and Lucy story, it would be nice to have a depiction of, like, these two people have it figured. Like, these guys are going to be happy. That, like, a happy marriage between two people is possible. Yeah. 
to like, contrast with the other two. I think they give that because Lucy says like this thing of like, I don't even want to change him when we're married. Do you think that's weird? And it's like, no, that's a sign of a healthy relationship. But they should have like come back to them at the end. Like yes. There should have been a resolution to the three marriages where we see like this is where they all end up and how that all relates. Um, and I, so I think that's the thing is the movie for me was really working on a thematic level because I was seeing those connections and then it just kind of became unspooled at the end. And I do agree with you that I think the reason that happens is because we get really wrapped up in the mechanics of the gimmicks and we run out of steam. Yeah. Um, so I, I will agree with you on that point. Um, I think for Vincent Price's part, he's fine. Like, who was it? The screenwriter was like, oh, he's like chewing the scenery and ruining my piece of art. He, he's not doing anything egregious. He He's fine. Like, I don't know. I think that guy needs to uh, take a break or something. Because, um, yeah, there was nothing that Price was doing that was egregious. The LSD scene is kind of fun just for, like, it being the first of its kind. But also, it's almost weird now to see a movie that, like, doesn't know how to visually depict a psychedelic experience because we've developed such like set visual tropes for it now Yeah. to the point where like, I have no idea if that's like what taking LSD looks like, but movies have always told me it involves, you know, kaleidoscopes, right? Like people suddenly having a third eye. Yeah. And... Like weird, like everything turns into a Salvador Dali painting, yes. right? That's what we're kind of used to seeing. And this movie just does the like we're underwater or going into a dream sequence like wavy film effect and that's about it. And then Vincent Price narrating what's happening like, oh, the walls are closing in. I did really like the moment where he he's like, I need some air. And he goes to a window and he throws it open and he's like, I can't get it open. It's nailed shut. That was good. That felt like a thing someone on drugs would really say and do. Yeah, yeah. Like... Yeah, so like I said, uh, I don't think he was doing anything wrong. I actually like all of the cast in this. Um, even the people who are one note, like David and Lucy, like I think everyone is doing a good job of being the characters that the script has set out for them to be. I really like um, Judith Evelyn, who's playing Martha and needs to do the like deaf mute fear thing. I think she does a great job with her physical acting for that. And of course... I'm sure there's some sort of film studies paper somewhere in like talking about the silent movie thing and like she's a deaf mute and like the fear and, and all of that. Like there's there's something in there somewhere, right? Yeah. I really like the scares in this movie. I really like the blood sequence. I heard a lot of reviews that were talking about how the movie sucks because of the tingler looks fake and dumb. I actually think the tingler looks pretty cool. Yeah, I like you can see the wires if you're looking for them, but the way that they handle it moving mm. makes it look like it's really moving. It, the, the legs don't move like a centipede's, but the movement of the body yeah. looks real. It looks like the 1959 version of the thing that Khan has in Star Trek 2. So like I literally could not stop thinking about that. Um That's funny cuz I couldn't stop thinking about that one TNG episode where they got those bugs in their brains. Right, yes, yeah. That's also, yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, I liked the intensity of this movie. I liked the nastiness of the characters. 
I liked seeing how Castle keeps exploring these domestic issues. I thought the suspense and tension was really well handled. Um, I thought the writing was really good in terms of like using dialogue to reveal character and like set up plot points in subtle ways. But I agree with you that it comes unspooled at the end. Um, So it's going to be really interesting to see how we're going to rank on this because I know for a fact that I'm way too high for you. Like, yeah, absolutely. You, you peeked at my notes, didn't you? (laughs) Okay, Sarah, I have a spot picked out. So like who wants to go first? Okay, well, let me lay out some of the land. Okay. Uh, La Diabolique is currently ranked at number 19. Yes. I think that's good for relevancy. Yeah. Um, House on Haunted Hill is at 25, mm-hmm. and Macabre is at 26. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is your spot? So this is my favorite William Castle movie of the William Castle movies we've seen so far. I liked this better than Macabre. I liked this better than House on Haunted Hill. One of the reasons I liked it better than House on Haunted Hill is I thought that, like, the tingler was more focused. It was like about a thing like house on Hind Hill is just trying to scare you. And the tingler like is groping for themes in the dark, maybe, but like they're there. And I just, I thought this movie like really pulled off the La Diabolique homage that he wanted to do. I thought this was the best William Castle thing we've seen so far. I really liked this. So I looked above house on Hind Hill. I didn't want to put it just like right above where we have like three William Castle movies in a row. I liked this better than Night of the Demon, which is a good movie, but I had issues with. Mm-hmm. I did not think it was better than Dracula um, because Dracula, while it also honestly has kind of a rushed week ending, um, has like a sustained atmosphere that this movie doesn't quite get to. So my spot for this was 24 below Dracula above night of the demon, because you know, it's definitely not as good as the diabolique. <sighs> yeah. So you see this, this was going to be a problem because you were like, I don't like this movie. And I'm all like, let's put it in the top 25. So this is, this is going to be an issue. So I started looking down the list mm-hmm. after deciding that, uh, I think it is the weakest, castle film sure. thus far i stopped around a hundred okay i feel like i would not go below house of frankenstein mm-hmm. because house of frankenstein is trying to do a lot of things i think the tingler is more focused than that but the thing that made me keep you know house of dracula possibly above the tingler is that sustained atmosphere like I think of that moment when Dracula is at the piano mm. and he's like, oh, like I'm saying Dracula things. I forget <laughs> what John Carradine says. Um, but it's just it's like mm, atmosphere, like all throughout. It is on the weak end of the movie. So that's why that's the bottom of where I had started looking. Mm. With that in mind, I started looking up. A lot of these movies have a lot of really good atmosphere, but might be a little weak narratively, like Mm. Catgirl, um, like The Amazing Mr. X. Um, Ultimately, I was like, okay, but what about, I don't know, Night of the Blood Beast at 100? Which one's Night of the Blood Beast? So that's, uh, it was very cheap. They were all stuck in a bunker. 
uh, because there's like that blood thing from the alien. It crashes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And And then it's like it kind of reanimates the dead. Like it's almost like Night of the Living Dead in a bunker by the end. Yeah. Okay. Which was not a good movie. Like it had like a really neat atmosphere. Mm. It, It, you know, has that we're stuck in a bunker thing. But I think the Tingler is better than that. Okay. However, uh, <laughs> I love how Cult of the Cobra has become like a demarcation on the list. It really it, has. Because it like is like, this about is something. almost a good movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's about something. And for me personally, I did not think the Tingler was about something. So I was like, okay, well, I, I can't. It's about it- something accidentally. <laughs> so I, I felt like I couldn't put it above Cult of the Cobra. Hmm. Quatermass 2 is the one where it's like the alien conspiracy about that plant right. and people are getting like possessed basically. There's that one guy who gets covered in like tar There's or the something. Goop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um I felt Quatermass 2 was better than The Tingler basically because of the scope. Okay, sure. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So my range is 98 to 109, but my spot that I kind of had within that range was the new 99, so below Quatermass 2, but above the thing that couldn't die, which was that head coming out and, like, hypnotizing people, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where I had been thinking. Okay. Well, I do want to come up from here, um, but I, I won't make you go up too far. Okay. Where were you thinking? Although now I'm, like, I'm looking at the list and I'm like, wait a minute, like, <laughs> uh, Vampire is at, like, 50 and Freaks is at like 87. And I just, in my head, I remember them being like right next to each other on the list. Yeah, man. This is episode like 275. I know. We've man. been doing this for a while. <laughs> what I like about The Tingler, you know, I've, I've outlined kind of what I like about the narrative. The thing about William Castle's films that make them feel special to me, especially in the context of this whole long show. A lot of movies, especially the ones we praise for having atmosphere, a lot of movies on the list are trying to spook the audience. William Castle is trying to scare the audience. He wants yeah. you to scream. He wants literally, you, like, it'll literally, save it's the your premise life. Premise of the fucking movie, <laughs> like he wants you to scream. He doesn't want you to like oh leave the theater with like a, oh, a bit of a chill down your spine. Like he wants you like terrified and that makes his movies feel special to me as much as we like the atmosphere if we're talking about the development of the horror movie as a genre like to me that's a big deal so my thing is i think the tingler is better than all of the um boris karloff i'm an old man scientist who might be a kindly grandpa or might be a psychotic murderer i don't know yet movies also columbia also Columbia. Yeah, I mean, fair. So I think the highest ranked of those is the man who changed his mind, which is at 83. <laughs> Sorry, that'll get me every time. <laughs> and looking up from there. Leopard Man has that very strong opening. And then just. Peter's out. Yeah, Peter's out. Where I kind of want to put this is above Horrors of the Black Museum, below Curse of the Undead. Uh, at 72 and I'll tell you why horrors of the black museum was super misogynist for no reason at all like completely accidentally like it was just a movie written by a misogynist that's the one with Michael Goff yes 
uh, with like the torture chamber and like the laser gun in the basement and the ending at the fairground where he makes oh, the Oh yeah, guy the jump laser off. gun in the basement. I had yeah, a moment right. of being like, the fuck are you talking exactly. about? Um, this movie has like these depictions of domestic abuse and like fractured non-functioning marriage that are on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like this is on purpose. I think the tingler is a little smarter than horrors of the black museum. And as much as I like understand where your issue with the film comes from, I didn't have that issue because I Mm -hmm. interpreted the things that you saw as fuck ups as like purposeful. However, curse of the undead is a movie about a vampire gunslinger. And that's just so cool. That's so fucking cool. So that's kind of where I'm sitting. I'll go up to to 72. I would, I would, you know, obviously I want to go higher here, but if I can get you up that high, you know, get this above some of the teen monster movies and and (laughs) the house movies and, and, you know, these things, um, I would be, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. I'm really surprised Castle isn't like dipping his toe into teens. Sorry, that sounded very odd. Uh, but, you know, the teen movies. Sure. Right? He's sure. not doing the blob. He's sure. doing these movies that are focusing on an older protagonist, which yeah. when they aren't these castle movies, we are finding them to be a little old fashioned. But I, maybe it's the, his gimmicks that are keeping them a little more fresh. The gimmicks, the thing that. Wanting to scare you. Wanting to scare you. I also think, like, he knows the audience's teens. Like, they aren't movies about teens. As we noticed here, the young people just vanish from the story. But, you know, speaking about what I was saying earlier about the suspension of disbelief, like, this is a movie that doesn't want you to think too hard about it. Yeah. And so if you're like a crusty old person, you're going to be like, there isn't no such thing. This is dumb. I'm a New York Times reviewer. Whereas, like, if you're, you know, a 16-year-old, like, this is a lot of fun. There's a lot of spooks and scares. In the movie theater... They're teens. Yeah. Uh, particularly the ones that we see get like the tingler coming up to them. Yes. So he's aware. Yeah. He knows he's aware who his of audience teens. is. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Let's go with this spot. I, I appreciate you coming down. You came down pretty far. Yes. Uh, you came down more than I'm going up. So I, I really appreciate that compromise. Yeah. I wasn't going to look for like what the midpoint was because I felt like we might get like really lost in the weeds because it was such a big difference um but i'm happy with this um cool i'll I'll settle for this uh so (laughs) thank you so much for settling (laughs) with me so coming in at the new number 72 is the tingler from 1959 directed by william castle and i mean at the end of the day there are 257 movies on this list it's getting to the point where 72 is like not a terrible showing. Yeah, that's like in the top 100. Yeah. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Slash hive at scream scene. If I can ever get it to fucking work.
Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave a rating or a review. Talk to the show about your friends. Let them know about it. Pass Talk word. to the show about your friends? That's right. <laughs> Give us emails about your friends. We want to hear about them. Uh, spread the show online. Uh, I recently saw someone got recommended the show because they were looking for like information on pre-code film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you're into old films, if you know people who are into old movies, old horror, tell them about the show. If you like what we do here, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, but patrons at the five and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. And we just like really, really appreciate it. We have hosting fees. Sure. But honestly, like it, we put a lot of time and effort into the show every week and knowing that people support us knowing that you enjoy what we do enough to you know throw a couple bucks our way every month it just really means a lot Mm -hmm. um so yeah if you'd like to uh be one of our patrons you can head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben well next week sarah we are coming to the follow-up the long-awaited follow-up to italy's e vampiri oh which was directed by Mostly by Ricardo Freda and a little bit by Mario Bava, we are going to be watching Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster, which is directed a little bit by Ricardo Freda and a lot of bit by Mario Bava. Cool. Yeah. So uh, I'm super excited to see this next step in the growth towards Mario Bava becoming like the Italian horror movie guy. Um, I've never seen Kaltiki, but it's got a reputation as something of a very cool sci-fi horror movie. So we will see what it's like. Oh, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. The Kingsford is loose in this theater. And it's not anything they do.